0: I'm going to begin in verse 29, Romans 8 and 29. It says, For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he did predestinate, them he also called, and whom he called, them he also justified. And whom he justified, them he also glorified. What shall we then say to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all. How shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect, if it is God that justifieth? Who is he? that condemneth. It is Christ that died, yea rather that is risen again, who is even at the right hand of God, who also maketh intercession for us. That's the passage we're going to cover this morning. Amen. Beginning with verse 29, ending with verse 34. And, and as we get into it, I'm going to read verse 29 again to kind of set the tone for where we are. It starts like this. It says, "For whom he did for He also did predestinate, to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. So verses 29 and 30, working together, describe the eternal plan of God for salvation. That plan has five phases. The first two are discussed in verse 29. The last three are discussed in verse 30. It begins with the foreknowledge of God. The verse begins with a statement, for whom he did for no. now you got to understand that God is all knowing. He inhabits uh, time like we inhabit space. Amen. We we can move around in our in our physical existence, and and we can access all of it. We can move from one place to another. God, we can't move through time that way. Time is a progression. The the, the second that just passed, we can't ever get back to it. And, and, and the minutes that are ahead of us, we, we don't have any guarantee that we'll ever reach them. Time is a progression for us. We, we move steadily through it. But God, he has access to all of it at the same time, just like we have access to this whole room. Amen? And so he's not limited the way that we are. He is all-knowing. He, he does not know the limits of time. Isaiah chapter 46 and verse 10, the prophet describes God as the one who knows the end from the beginning, amen. From the very beginning, he already knows the ending. So God's plan for salvation begins with his foreknowledge. Before he ever created man, he knew that there would be a need for a Savior. Before he ever formed man from the dust of the earth, he already had the image in his mind of the cross. So this is important to understand because the cross is not God's knee-jerk reaction to sin. God didn't create man and man sinned. And God said, okay, now I need to figure out what I need to do to redeem man. When God made man, he had already envisioned salvation, the plan of salvation. The cross was already in the mind of God. Revelation chapter 13 and verse 8 says that Jesus Christ was The lamb that was slain from the foundations of the world. God knew that men would fall into sin. He knew that there would be a need for redemption. And he knew that there would have to be a place called Calvary. So he included it in his plan from the beginning. Amen? And so Paul now refers to that foreknowledge of God as the beginning or the first of God's plan for salvation. God knew that we would all be born under the guilt of sin. And he knew that when he made a way for salvation, that some would accept it and some would reject it. And those who rejected it would be lost. But those who embraced that plan of salvation, they would be saved. And God in his foreknowledge knew that before he ever created mankind, uh, he knew he was going to have a church. Uh, He knew he was going to have a bride. Uh, Amen. He knew there was going to be a people uh, who would follow him, who would walk with him, who would have fellowship with him. He knew there would be those who would be unrighteous. He knew there would be those who would reject his loving kindness. Uh, He knew there would be those that would not serve him, but he foreknew uh, that he would have have a church, uh, he foreknew uh, that there would be those uh, who would walk with him, uh, who would know him, uh, in whom he could display his glory. The church existed in the foreknowledge of God, amen, whom he did foreknow. The verse goes on to say, whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate. That word predestinate means to determine in advance to plan ahead it has the indication of an unchangeable plan amen what is predestinated will come to pass it cannot be altered it cannot be changed uh, what God predest this doesn't just mean God made a plan and it is it is it alters someone you know, I make a plan Lots of times, Brother Donnie, I leave work at 4 o'clock in the afternoon with a plan about how my evening's going to go. And then I talk to my good, precious wife, and I change my plan. Amen? When God makes a plan and he predestinates it, it doesn't get changed. It isn't altered along the way. This is not something that is going to shift with time because God, who sees the end from the beginning, the one who speaks into the darkness of space and creates whole universes, uh, causes whole solar systems to come into being, that God has already determined. He already foreknows. He will have a church. Amen. And so God has predestinated the pride of Christ. Uh, He has predestinated his church uh, and nothing can alter the fact uh, that God will have a church. It will be a church triumphant. It will be an overcoming church. It's going to be a church that is without spot and without wrinkle. It's going to be a church that lives holy and godly and righteous in an ungodly world. It's going to be a church that lets the light of the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ shine through it and pierces the darkness of the world around it before he ever reached down and formed man of the dust of the earth, he envisioned, he planned, uh, he predestinated. There will be a people uh, who are washed uh, in the blood of Jesus Christ, uh, who have been baptized uh, in that wonderful name, uh, amen, who are called uh, by his name that belong to him. Uh, he will have a church, amen. What I want you to understand here is that predestination applies to God's plan for salvation, to the fact that God will have a church, not to the fate of each individual person. God predestinated that there would be an incarnation, that he would robe himself in flesh, that he would become a man. God predestinated that that man would be killed, would be crucified for our sins. He predestinated that there would be a cross, that there would be Calvary, that they would shed his blood, that they would whip him, that they would beat him, that they'd put a crown of thorns on his head, that they would pierce his side, and then they would take him, and they would bury him in a borrowed tomb, and he predestinated the resurrection uh, of Jesus Christ from the grave. Uh, He predestinated the outpouring uh, of the Holy Ghost uh, on the day of Pentecost. Uh, He predestinated the fact uh, that one of these days uh, the trump of God is going to sound and those which are dead in Christ uh, are going to rise first. Uh, Then we which are alive uh, and remain uh, are going to be caught up together with him. He predestinated the fact uh, that when it's all said and done, he's going to have a church without spot and blemish. Those things are bound to occur. They cannot change. They are the plan of God that was put in motion before he ever began to create the world. Uh, Those things were predestinated. The church was foreordained. It was going to come into existence no matter what. All the power in hell can't stop God's plan. All the forces of the world can't stop God's plan. All the governments and all the institutions and all the laws can't stop God's plan. He will have a church. The church in general is the focus of this plan of God that's being expressed by Paul. And it begins the progression the very first part of this, this verse with the word whom, for whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate. That word whom is a plural. It gives the indication that we're not talking about the fate of an individual. We're not talking about the fate of a single person. We're talking about the fate of a group. We're talking about the fate of the church. Amen. He foreknew the church. He predestinated the church. He will have a church. These verses don't mean that an individual's fate is predetermined. It doesn't mean that it was decided before you were born whether or not you were going to be in the church. That's not what it means at all. You still have the opportunity and the, uh, the, the responsibility to work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. That's what the Word of God says in Philippians chapter 2 and verse 12. You still got that responsibility. You still got to determine whether or not you're going to be in this church. There's going to be a church whether you're in it or not. I hate to tell you that, my friend. Amen. If you don't show up next Sunday, there's still going to be church here. Amen. That's just the way it's going to be. There's going to be a bride. There's going to be a church. You've got to decide if you're going to be a part of it or not. You've got to decide if you're going to be washed in the blood, if you're going to be a part of the redeemed. It has been predetermined that he's going to have a church, but you have the freedom to choose if you're going to be a part of that church or not. The point is not to say that you have no choice in whether or not you will be saved. The point is to say that if you follow the plan of salvation, if you obey the Word of God, if you're obedient to Him, if you you surrender your life to Him, if you choose to become a part of the church, and if you remain in the church, your salvation is sure. He's going to have a church. It's going to be saved. It's going to be holy. It's going to be glorious. It's going to be victorious. Amen? The church is going to overcome this world. Uh, the church is going to be victorious in this world. I don't. I believe he's coming back. Uh, I believe he's coming back soon. And I don't believe he's coming back for a weak, decrepit, defeated, down, downtrodden church. Uh, I believe he's coming back for overcomers. Uh, I believe he's coming back for people who have victory in their life. I don't believe this church. Uh, amen is going to be beaten and defeated when it leaves this world Uh, I believe we're leaving this world victorious uh, overcomers uh, in Jesus Christ that's what he has determined and if you get in the church and you stay in the church, uh, you can rest assured uh, you're going to be a part of that bride. Uh, amen. You can your salvation is settled. Uh, if you get in the church uh, and you stay in the church, uh, you can you can bank on it. You can count on it. Amen. You're going to make it to heaven one day. Amen. You may stumble along the way, but if you stay with the church, you're going to make it. You may fall along the way. You may mess up from time to time. But if you get back up uh, and put it under the blood uh, and stay with the church. uh, Honey, I'm here to tell you today, this church uh, is leaving this world uh, victorious. Uh, This church uh, is going to overcome sin. Uh, This church uh, is going to overcome temptation. Uh, This church uh, is going to overcome principalities and powers. Uh, If you stay in the church, you're going to make it. That's the promise of the word of God. Amen. You have that assurance. If you remain in God's plan for your life, if you remain in the church, in the end, the church is going to be triumphant. Whatever you do, don't turn your back on the church. Whatever you do, don't forsake the plan of God for your life. Whatever You've got to believe when you came to the church and you surrendered your heart to Jesus, you've got to believe he had a plan and a purpose for your life. Whatever you do, don't abandon that purpose. Uh, That's what's getting you from here to glory. Whatever you do, don't turn your back. Uh, Somewhere in your life you had a moment uh, where you bent your knees and you bowed your head. And you said, Lord, I surrender to you. I surrender to your will. I want to serve you. I want to love you. I want to know you. I want to walk with you. The promise is if you'll continue in that, you're going to make it to heaven one day. That's the promise of the Word of God. Amen? Whatever you do, don't turn your back on God's plan. Whatever you do, don't cut yourself off from God's will and God's purpose for your life. Amen? What did God predestinate for His church then? He predestinated it to be conformed to the image of His Son. He might be the firstborn among many brethren. He foreordained that the church would be made in the likeness of Christ. The image of the second man, Adam, would be imprinted on the church Christ would be formed in us my mind would become like his mind, my thoughts would grow to be like his thoughts his ways would become my ways his nature would settle on me and I, I would begin to reflect Jesus Christ and the things I say and the things I do and the places I go that I would be made in his image, that's what he predetermined, that's what he foreordained for the church, amen, if we're going to be a apart of the church. Uh, amen. That that means that from the point of our conversion, from the, the day that we turn our heart to Him, that we repented of our sins, were baptized in His name and filled with the precious gift of the Holy Ghost, we should be growing into what He has called us to be, into the image of christ uh, that christ would be formed in us uh, amen we should become more and more like him uh, and less and less like us uh, amen there ought to be a change uh, in your life there ought to be some things uh, that begin to change uh, when you turn your heart to him uh, when he fills you with his spirit uh, amen he's making you in the image of christ that's a growth process amen that means I'm leaving behind some old things. The Bible said old things have passed away, and all things have become brand new. Amen. I'm leaving behind some old things, and I'm embracing some new things. I'm growing to be what He's called me to be. Amen. If I do that, if I stay in that course, if I, if I stay in the church, I have a promise. Amen. The church has been predestinated. It's going to make it. It's going to be victorious. Verse 30 builds on that, moreover, whom he did predestinate, them he also called, and whom he called, them he also justified, and whom he justified, them he also glorified. Amen. First of all, the calling. God knew he would have a church. Then he predestined its ultimate salvation. And victory over the world, the church would overcome, the church would be victorious, and then based on that plan, based on the knowledge, there's going to be a bride, there's going to be a church, and, and that church is going to overcome, then he began to call men and women to become a part of that church, amen, that's the calling of God, amen, he called them, now I want you to understand something, this is not a limited calling. God does not look at your life and predetermine whether or not you're going to accept his calling and then decide whether or not he's going to call you. Amen. This is not a, a limited calling. God Calls whosoever will. Amen. He doesn't just call those that he knows are going to respond. Uh, he doesn't just call those that he knows are going are to be saved. The invitation according to Matthew chapter 20 and verse 16 is to everybody. Many are called, the scripture said, but few are chosen. Uh, amen. The difference between being called and being chosen is what you do with the call of God in your life. Amen. He's calling every individual. He's calling every person. He's calling all of us to be a part of that predestined bride, that predestined church. Amen. Every one of us has that calling. The difference between the called and the chosen is what you do with that calling. If this passage was teaching that the fates of individuals were already determined, that, that you didn't have any choice in the matter, that God had already decided whether you were going to be saved or not from the moment that you were born, then the calling of God would be a very specific, very limited calling. Amen. You read your Bible. That's not how God describes the calling of the church, of the bride. Amen. The Bible says he calls whosoever will. To everyone, he extends the call. To everyone, he extends the invitation. It's a broad, far reaching call. Anyone and everyone is invited to become a part of the bride of Christ. Uh, Everyone is invited to become a part of the church. Uh, Amen. There's nobody that's excluded. There's nobody that, from the moment, I I talked to a man one day and he told me, Amen. As a matter of fact, he came to church here for a little while and then he quit coming. And I I talked to him and I said, You know, I, I just believe there are some people that it was to before they were born that they were going to be lost. Uh, And I'm one of those people, and there's nothing that can be done to save me. Nothing in the world could be further from the truth. Amen. The call of God is to everybody. Amen. Jesus Christ did not die for a select few that he predetermined would be saved. He died for the whole entire world that anyone who believed, uh, that anyone who would come to him and obey the gospel of Jesus Christ could be saved. Everybody has that invitation. Everybody has that calling. But those that are chosen, those that are part of the bride are those who answer the call. Those are the only ones that are called out of sin. Those are the only ones that become a part of that set-apart group that's called the church. Everyone is called. Those who are chosen are those who answer the call. Amen. Who respond to that call. And the church will be composed from. Those who were called and answered. And it's, in, it's interesting that in the Greek language, the word that we translate as church is the Greek word ecclesia, which means the called out. It's a verb. It, it relates to being called. And when we talk about the church, we're talking about that group that answered that call. We're talking about that group that responded that that became a part. Not just those that God called, but those that God answered. They're the called out. Amen. They're the separated. That is the church. Amen. The fourth phase then is justification. Now now we see where justification comes in. Whom he called, them he also Justified, Amen. Those who answer the call, who obey the gospel, they are justified. God counts them as righteous on the basis of the cross, regardless of their past. That's what justification means. It don't matter what you did. It don't matter how far you'd gone. It don't matter what kind of sin you had committed. Whenever you came to Jesus Christ, He forgave you. He declared you to be righteous on the basis of His own sacrifice. It's under the blood of Jesus. It is forgiven. Amen. It doesn't matter how. You could have been as evil as you can imagine. You could have been as bad as as the worst that you can come up with. But whenever you surrendered your life to Jesus Christ, when it was placed under the blood praise the Lord thank you for bearing with me amen that's what happens whenever you you're going for a Sunday you forget your routine we didn't change the batteries and the batteries said you know what I'm done now <laughs> amen so when he justified you justified means he made he declared you to be righteous you weren't righteous there's not if I said who deserved to be saved nobody could lift their hand nobody not one of us who deser- who, who is really righteous no not one he justified me he made me righteous on the basis of his blood on the basis of his sacrifice and the final step is glorification whom he justified them he also glorified amen we're not there yet we're as a church we're in that that fourth step we, we've been justified and we're, we're on our way to glorification but we're not there yet we're we're called out we're separated from this world but we still live in sinful world we we still struggle with sinful flesh we still struggle with a sin nature amen we, we still fight a very real battle in this world one of these days though, Amen. He's going to take us out of this world. He's going to separate us from all of that. And the Bible said when he does, he's going to give us a brand new glorified body. Amen. We have not seen yet what we're going to be, amen. But we're going to be made in the image of him who was the firstborn of the dead, amen. Something changed, amen. He was glorified. And one of these days, he's going to take us out of this world, and he's going to glorify us. And on that day, we will have finally, completely overcome this world, amen. You won't have to deal with sin anymore. You won't have to deal with a sin nature anymore. You won't have to deal with your flesh and the way you had to deal with your flesh now. All of that will be forever set aside and you will forever be, be separated unto God. That's what it means to be glorified. Amen. That's the end goal of the salvation process. Now, I want you to notice. That although we are not yet glorified, Paul continues to speak of glorification in that same past tense sense that he spoke of everything else. Because in the mind of God, it's as good as done. In the mind of God, it's already settled. It is absolutely certain that what he foreordained or what he predetermined or what he predestined, he's going to bring to pass. Uh, Amen. He is going to do what he said he would do. And if you remain in the church... If you don't forsake God's plan for your life, you don't turn your back on God, He's going to keep you, and you're going to be saved. It's already settled. Just as surely as you are justified, you'll be glorified. If you stick with it, one of these days, He's going to take you from this world, and He's going to complete the good work that He has begun in you. All you have to do is hold on. All you've got to do is stay in the church. It's that simple. All you've got to do is stay in the church. Verse 31 says, what shall we then say to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? Now we start that final paragraph, that, that, that crescendo of the whole book. This is the climax, the first half of the book of Romans. And most uh, theologians would argue that this is the high point of the entire book, these next nine verses. They proclaim the assurance of our salvation. They assure us that God's plan for our lives is secure. Amen. Regardless of the circumstances. Regardless of the things that we may encounter. Regardless of the enemies that may stand against us. Regardless of the things that that may try to derail us. If we want to be saved, we will be saved. Amen. Nothing can stop us from being saved. If we want to give our life to God. If we want to surrender to Him. If we were genuine in wanting to follow His will for our life, and we pursue Him. Nothing in this world can rob us of our salvation. Nothing has the power to take away from us what God is giving to us. If we want to be saved, we will be saved. Amen? If we choose to remain in the church, if we choose to follow God's plan for our lives, no external force can render that choice ineffective in our lives. If we have truly determined I surrender my life to you, I'm going to go where you say go. I'm going to do what you say do. I'm going to dedicate myself to following you, God, to reading your word, to obeying your word, to living a life that's pleasing to you, to pursuing your grace and your goodness in my life. Nothing in this world can take you out of the church Amen There is no power There is no authority There is no principality, there is no subject there is no government, there is no law, there is no institution that has the authority to take you out of the grace of God except your own human will You're the only one You're the only one that can rob yourself of the assurance of your salvation. No external force can do that to you. Nothing. There isn't a demon in hell big enough to take you out of the church. There isn't isn't a, a circumstance in this world major enough to force you out of the church. The only one that can do that is you. The only only power that can cause you to forsake the grace of God, to forsake the will and the plan of God, to leave the church of God, is you. You're the only one that can do that. So verse 31 begins this way, in light of all that we've discussed, with God's eternal plan for salvation in mind. The fact that he foreknew and he predestined. He's already determined there's going to be a church. In light of all that, what shall we say then? What is the conclusion of the matter? What does all of that teach us? It teaches us that if God is for us, then none can be against us. Uh, Amen. If God is on our side, uh, it doesn't matter who opposes us. Uh, If God is on our side, it doesn't matter what comes against us. If God is on our side, it doesn't matter what governments do. It doesn't matter what courts do. It doesn't matter what the doctor says. It doesn't matter what the lawyer says. It doesn't matter what the economy does. It does not matter. Nothing in this world can take me out of the grace of God. Nothing. Nothing in this world can rob me of the salvation that He's given me. If He's for me, there's nothing that can stand against me. His promise is forever settled in heaven. He has already determined He's going to have a victorious church. And if I stay with that church, if I keep myself in His plan, if I keep myself surrendered to His will, If I keep myself yielded, if I stay in that place where I was when I surrendered my life to Him, then nothing in this world can steal that ultimate victory from me. I'm going to be saved. I'm going to make it to heaven. I'm going to walk on streets of gold one of these days. The four in that phrase, if God be for us, could also be translated if God be on behalf of us, if He works if he works on behalf of us. The suggestion is more than just the notion. I, you know, I could go watch Brother Sean compete in some kind of event, and I could be for him, meaning that I'm on the sidelines rooting for him. Th- that's, that's being for him. But if, if it's a basketball game, and when the competitor comes by during the ball, I'll reach out my foot and, and trip the guy. I'm doing more than just being for him. I'm trying to help Him. Now, that may be against the rules, but that's what I'm doing. Amen. When when the Bible says that God is for us, it doesn't just mean that He's there. He's present. He's rooting for us. Come on, make it to heaven. It means that He's working on our behalf. His, His power and His authority and His ability has been channeled into the purpose of making sure we make it to heaven. Amen. The the significance of God being for us is not that he's pulling for us, but that he is actually working on our behalf. He is personally invested in our salvation. I want you to understand something. God's not neutral. He isn't The Swiss and this thing. He isn't some third party that's just kind of watching to see how it works out. God's on your side. He wants you to make it. He's trying to help you make it. Amen. All of his power and all of his ability is invested in making sure you make it. When he called you out of sin, when he filled you with his spirit, he invested himself into your life. Can I tell you, God is personally involved in your salvation. This is personal for God. He wants you to make it. When Paul says, if he is for us, he's saying, he's working on our side. He's working on your behalf. Then he says, who can be against us? Now, he's not suggesting that there won't be any opposition. He's not suggesting that there'll never be any that will stand against you. There's not going to be anything that's going to try to thwart God's plan for your life. That's not what he's saying at all. But what he is saying is that if God is working for us, does it really matter who's against us? Come on, if God is invested in my salvation, if God is working for me, does it really matter who opposes me? Does it really matter who comes against me? Does it really matter what power or authority is trying to get me out of the church? There is no power in the universe greater than God. There is no authority in the universe that outmatches God's authority. There is no person, there is no spirit, there is no force anywhere that can overcome the God who is working for you. No external force can stop you from being saved. There isn't anything outside of your own human will That can cause you not to be saved. If you make up your mind, I'm going to make heaven my home. And you don't ever change that mind. If you make up your mind, I'm going to put him before I put everything else in my life. And you don't ever alter that decision. You have this assurance. He is working for you, with you, on your side. And it really doesn't matter what comes against you. It really doesn't matter what opposes you because nothing in this world, nothing in all of the spirit realm around you, there is no power that has the ability to stop you from making it to heaven. Amen. Verse 32 says, He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Now, continuing that thought that God is for us, Paul presents the most compelling evidence that there is. If God is willing to become a man, if God is willing to leave his throne in glory and robe himself in flesh in order to lay down his life for my salvation, if God is that invested in my salvation, surely he's going to make sure. That I have everything that I need to make it to heaven. Think about it. God's already done the hardest part. He's already paid the ultimate price. The creator of the universe. The ancient of days. The one who was and is and forever will be. The authority to which all of heaven bows. Made himself a little lower than his creation a little lower than the angels, that he might suffer death for every man. That's what the Bible says. That's the hard part. That's the difficult part. God humbled himself. you got to think about that for a minute. He's all-powerful. All authority, all power in the world answers to him. He doesn't have to humble himself to anybody. You know, kings don't bow. Kings don't, kings heads of state, when they meet other heads of state, they don't bow to the other head of state. Why? Because their power is self-sufficient. They have their own authority. And they don't, to bow, to stand in the presence of another head of state and bow is to say my authority is subject to your authority. I could get real political right now and I'm not going to. God doesn't have to bow to anybody. God doesn't have to humble himself to anybody. But he humbled himself. So he could save me. He suffered death. So he could save me. If he's already done that much. If he's already gone that far. There's nothing that could be harder. To save me. There's nothing that could require more of him. In order to make sure I make it to heaven. If he's done that much. Then he's going to make sure I have everything I need. The argument here is from the greater to the lesser. God has already given us the greatest possible gift that he could have given us. When he rolled himself in flesh and he died for our sins. He's already done the hardest thing we could have asked him to do. If I told you my son could jump over a six-foot fence flat-footed, then it would be needless to argue whether or not he could jump over a four-foot fence flat-footed. The greater to the lesser. If he can do the greater, you know he can do the lesser. If the greatest thing that could have ever been asked of God is that he would robe himself in flesh and become a man and die for my sins, then how can you think he wouldn't do whatever you need him to do in order to make sure you make it to heaven? In order to make sure you have everything you need to make heaven your home. He'll freely give you, the Bible says, the verse says, all things. He's going to protect his investment. He's going to protect what he's put into you. He'll give you whatever you need to make it to heaven. Verse 33 says, who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God that justifieth. The final two verses, verses 33 and 34, that will finish this morning's lesson. We're going to switch for a moment to the language of a courtroom. If God is for us, then He is our defender. He is our defense attorney, if you will. But not only is He our defense attorney, Paul says He's also our judge. You see, the problem is the the odds are stacked against the prosecuting attorney because the, the defense attorney and the judge are working together. They're in cahoots, if you will. And and the judge has already decided that we're innocent before the trial ever begins. So he says, who can lay anything to our charge or, or who can prosecute us? God is the judge and he has justified us. He has declared us to be innocent on the basis of the shed blood of Jesus Christ. Who can accuse us? Who can oppose us? Who can lay anything to our charge if God's already declared us to be innocent? Now, just a few verses ago, Paul said, who can be against us? And we understood that there are some that that doesn't mean that nobody will be against us. There are some that will be against us. It just meant that it doesn't really matter who's against us because God's for us. Amen? Amen. Now when he says, who can accuse us? Once again, he's not saying that there won't be any accusation. He's not saying that there won't be any that can accuse you because there are those that will accuse you. The Bible calls the devil the accuser of the brethren. He accuses you. He specializes in reminding you of the faults and the failures and the things that you've done wrong. He specializes in pulling stuff out from underneath the blood of Jesus and reminding you of what you have done, of sins that you've committed, of accusing you of things that you're guilty of. He specializes in accusing you of things that are already under the blood of Jesus. But he's not the only accuser. Your own conscience becomes your accuser. Sometimes you beat yourself up. Sometimes you remember what you've done, and you remember when you failed, and you remember where you messed up, and you remember how far away from God you got, and you accuse yourself of being unworthy. You accuse yourself, and you put stumbling blocks in your own way, and you say to yourself, I'm just not good enough. Why does God mess with me? The point here is not that there won't ever be any action. The point is not that there, there won't be any accusers because there will be. There are going to be days when your past comes roaring back to accuse you. Remember Paul? Shipwrecked on the island. The ambassador of Jesus Christ. The great missionary. He goes to build a fire to warm those souls that he's just helped save from the water. When he builds a fire, that serpent comes running out and bites you on the hand. Very poisonous serpent. Death is imminent. The people on that island, they don't know Paul. You know, maybe they've heard rumors. These are prisoners and these, these are people who are going to Rome for, for judgment. And they started speculating. And Brother Anderson, what did they say? He must be a murderer. He, he must be. Can you imagine how that felt to Paul? Because you know what? the charge was true. He was a murderer. He had had taken the lives of those who had defended the gospel of Jesus Christ. He was guilty as charged. And his guilt, no doubt, came very real to him in that moment. It became very real to him that he was unworthy. The point is not that there won't be accusers. The point is not that, that there aren't going to be those that are going to rise up against you and, and remind you of things that you've done wrong. The point is not that you're never going to hear the voice of the enemy in your ears saying, you're saying you're not good enough. Amen. You don't deserve it. Uh, amen. You've messed up too many times. Uh, the point is uh, that the voice of the accuser has no authority. Uh, he can accuse you, but he can't condemn you because you've already been forgiven Uh, it's already under the blood of Jesus Uh, he's already justified you whenever you repented of your sins you put it under the blood of Jesus Uh, and the accuser can remind you and he can come and lay a guilt trip on you but he can't condemn you because there is no condemnation to them who are in Christ Jesus I'm not I may feel guilty I may have been guilty, but I'm not guilty anymore because of the blood of Jesus Christ. I've already been forgiven. The final verse says this, who is he that condemneth? It is the continuation of the thought. The last verse ended with it is God that justifieth. Then the the couplet to that is who is he that condemneth? It is Christ that died, yea, rather, that is risen again, who is even at the right hand of God, who also maketh intercession for us. So it's the continuation of the thought of verse 33. God has justified us. Who can condemn us? The answer is simple and emphatic. There's none that can condemn us. They can accuse us, but they can't condemn us because the guilt of my former life is under the blood of Jesus Christ. And what's under the blood is under the blood. It's never going to be remembered against me again. Never means never in God's economy. Never going to be remembered against me again. The judge of my soul the only one that can condemn me when he looks at my past uh, he sees the blood of Jesus Christ uh, and that blood says i'm innocent amen in the final verse of that sentence or the final sentence of that verse paul gives the basis for that assurance we are forgiven not on the grounds of what we have done but on the grounds of what christ has done his death has purchased our salvation. His righteousness has made a way for us to be born again into His likeness. His present intercession is constantly covering our sins with His blood. Even if we sin after we're saved, we have an advocate with the Father through the blood of Jesus Christ. We can receive forgiveness of our sins by confessing them and repenting of them and putting them under the blood of Jesus. Whenever John wrote to the church, In 1 John chapter 1 and verse 9, writing to people who were saved, he said, if we confess our sins, if we confess our sins... He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If after you've been saved, you mess up and you make a mistake and you, you, you forsake the love of God, you do something absolutely stupid. It doesn't mean you're lost for the rest of your life. It means you've got to confess your sins. You need to repent. Uh, you need to put it under the blood of Jesus because you had this promise. Uh, he is faithful and just to forgive. Amen? So when when Paul says that Jesus is presently making intercession for us, listen, he does not mean that Christ is presently praying on the right hand of God or that, that, that he is presently, as a priest, offering sacrifices for us in heaven right now. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 12, beginning with verse 12, going through verse 14, says this. But this man, speaking of Christ, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins. Everybody say one. One sacrifice for sins forever. Say forever. Sat down. On the right hand. Say sat down. That's kind of final. One sacrifice forever. And he sat down. One time. Forever. Forever. And he sat down from henceforth, expecting till his enemies be made his footstool for by one offering. He hath perfected forever them that are sanctified. That one offering, Jesus on the cross, was all sufficient. That blood still works today, just like it worked then. And it is presently available for us if we sin now after having obeyed the plan of salvation, after having experienced that wonderful gift of salvation, and we repent of that sin, the same blood that covered us then covers us now. It took one sacrifice. It took one death. He died one time. He shed his blood one time, and he sat down forever. Amen? So going back to 1 John, if we confess our sins, He's faithful to forgive us. The caveat there is you've got to confess your sins. Amen? You've got to come to Him in, in repentance. You've got to put your heart under the blood of Jesus. If you're determined to be saved, nothing in this world can cost you your salvation. Not even a sin. Because if you're determined to be saved, you're going to come and find a place of the grace of God and repent of that sin. Amen? Amen? Come on, how many of you after the day after you were saved stubbed your toe and said a bad word? What'd you do? Almost immediately, some some are smiling, they know exactly. They remember the day. Almost immediately that guilt and then that, Lord, I'm sorry. Put it under the blood. I'm gonna keep it. I'm made, I got my mind made up for I'm going to heaven, folks. I love this old world and the, the fishing and the hunting. and all, But I got a feeling it's going to be better on the other side of glory. And I have made up my mind nothing in this world is going to keep me from heaven. I'm going to heaven one of these days. So if I mess up, I'm going to put it under the blood of Jesus. If I make a mistake, I'm going to find a place of repentance and I'm going to put it under the blood of Jesus. When Paul says that Christ is at the right hand of God, He's not speaking of the physical positioning of two different beings. He's not speaking of the physical positioning of two different gods. He cannot be speaking of the physical positioning of two different gods because the Bible is explicit in the fact that there's only one God. There's only one. And that God is a spirit, He is invisible. He doesn't have a body. The only body that God has is Christ. When God manifests himself in the flesh. And in the book of Revelation chapter 4 and then again chapter 22. John saw one throne in heaven. And he saw one sitting on that throne. And that one was Jesus Christ. One throne. One God. One sitting on that throne, and that one was Jesus. So what does Paul mean when he says he's sitting at the right hand? Of God? What did the writer of Hebrews mean when he said one sacrifice, and then he sat down at the right hand of God? Throughout the Bible, the right hand is symbolic of power and strength. To be seated at the right hand is to be seated in a position of honor and favor. If you remember, on on the, right before the, the crucifixion, uh, the twins, is it John and James' mother, came to Jesus and said, Hey, you know my boys, they're your disciples. I know you love them. Why don't you let them sit one on the right hand and one on the left hand? Let them have the place of honor. And Jesus said that he that is first will be last. And he that is preferred is going to have to humble himself. And all, You remember all that? The reason she wants her son sitting on the right hand of Jesus because that says they're preferred. This is they've they've been chosen. They're, They're in that place of honor, that position of honor. What Paul is saying, what the writer of Hebrews is saying about the man Christ is that he's been given the supreme position of power. He has the power to save us. And through his power, we have access to all the riches of salvation. It's about the preeminence of Jesus Christ. It's about the power of Jesus Christ. He has the power to save us. And he has the power to keep us saved. That's the point. No external force has the power to spoil God's plan for your life. Nothing in this world, nothing in the spirit world, nothing anywhere in the realm of God's creation has the ability To spoil God's plan for your life. That does not mean, however, that you cannot lose out with God. That does not mean that you cannot decide personally to remove yourself from the grace of God. To remove yourself from the plan of God. And to cut yourself off from the church. You are And always will be a free moral agent. God made you with the power of choice. And you will always have the ability of choice. You are the only one that can cause yourself to lose out with God. What that means is if if you lose out with God, there's going to be nobody to blame. You won't be able to blame it on the devil. You won't be able to blame it on the job. You won't be able to blame it on the sickness. You won't be able to blame it on the government. You won't be able to blame it on anybody, anywhere, anything. It'll only be you. No external force is great enough to prevent God's plan from coming to pass in your life. You are the only one who has that power. The point of this section, the point of the whole passage, and we'll finish it next week, is to declare the security that we have in Christ Jesus. If my mind is made up, I'm going to make it to heaven, Brother Donnie. There's nothing in this world that can keep me from it. There's not a power great enough to keep me from it. If I continue in the faith, if I continue to follow Him, if I allow the power of God to be made manifest in my life, if I let Him imprint His image on my life, there's nothing in this world, not even the strongest spiritual enemy in hell, has the ability to overcome the plan of God for my life. The worst earthly disaster you can imagine can't sidetrack me from the plan of God. The most devastating physical sickness that there is, doesn't have the ability to sidetrack me from the plan of God. The most tragic emotional loss that I could experience doesn't have the ability to take me away from the grace of God. Nothing has the power to stop me from reaching heaven if I've got my mind made up and I stay with the church because the church has been predestined. It has been predetermined. This church is leaving this world one of these days. It's going to be triumphant. It's going to overcome. Would you stand with me? Brother Ryan, if you'd come to the music.